interesting to see how the poet, uh, the poem is constructed. But if you would turn in your Bibles now to the book of Lamentations and chapter 3, page 688. As we continue this series and this book, we come to the middle poem of the five. Let us hear and read the word of the Lord. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all days long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? 
Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, some of you will know that the hymn, When Peace Like a River, was written after the author's four daughters drowned uh, at sea. And there are many other hymns that were written after a single major traumatic event. But the hymn that we sung earlier, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is not one of those hymns. It was written by Thomas Chisholm. And Thomas Chisholm spent many years living and working as a life insurance agent. But he struggled with health issues, sometimes more and sometimes less, until he eventually died at the ripe old age of 94. So Chisholm's life was one of ordinary or everyday struggles, we could say. At one time, while Chisholm was away from home on a missions trip, he sent some poems that he had written to a friend of his, William Runyon, who happens to be a musician. Now, William Runyon was so captivated, especially by the poem that Chisholm had written about Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23, that he composed music so that 
it could be sung as a hymn. And the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, was born. Published in 1923 as a celebration of God's faithfulness over a lifetime. Well, many people see verses 22 and 23 of this chapter as the high point or the center of the book of Lamentations. And the beautiful words of those verses do indeed shine very bright, very brightly against the background of a lot of despair throughout the book of Lamentations. But while those words are relatively well known because of the hymn, the rest of the chapter is probably unfamiliar to many of us. Now, Lamentations, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book, is a book written after Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians and the people had been carried off to exile in Babylon around about 600 BC. Those of you who have been present for the first two sermons will know that as we have worked through those two chapters, we have heard from two characters We have heard from the poet, whom we have called the narrator, and we have heard from a personification of Jerusalem that we have called Lady Zion. They are the two that have spoken. But we're not going to hear from Lady Zion anymore. She doesn't speak in the rest of Lamentations. As you can see from verse 1, it is a man who is speaking from this point on. And most likely, he is our narrator from the first two chapters. Indeed, a very good case can be made for this man to be none other than the prophet Jeremiah himself, as we shall see. For those of you who have been present might also remember that we have considered three major themes as we have been working through the book of Lamentations. The first is that man is really, really bad. The second is that God is really, really angry. And the third is that God's grace is really, really powerful. We're going to see those themes again in this chapter as well. Set against the background of the suffering and sorrow of God's people. And it is out of that suffering that arises these very difficult why, O Lord, questions that we encounter in these verses. And we dare not for a moment minimize the despair that we read on these pages. Whether it be in the wake of a single major traumatic event or the more ordinary struggles of of everyday life, Every Christian will encounter times when they struggle to understand why the Lord has brought this particular circumstance into their lives. Indeed, some of you may have come to church today with that very question weighing heavily on your heart. So as we turn our attention to this chapter, we read in verse 6 about dwelling in darkness and in verse 53 about being flung into a pit 
But we also read in verse 22 about the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. So here in the third of the five poems of Lamentations, a ray of hope shines out of the pit of dark despair. And we shall see this as we consider the five sections of this chapter where we see that hope fades, hope remembers, hope instructs, hope cries, and hope pleads. First of all, in verses 1 through 18, we see that hope fades. At the very end of chapter 2, our narrator was calling on Lady Zion, the people of Jerusalem, to turn to the Lord in repentance and confession. But Lady Zion was not ready to do that. We saw that she was still very angry with God for what had happened to her. And so our narrator kind of changes his approach as we come to chapter 3. Basically what he does in this chapter is to speak from his own personal experience in the past as an encouragement to the situation of the Jews in the present. Let me explain. If you are familiar with the story of Jeremiah the prophet, there are certain things that you read as you go through chapter 3 that will seem familiar. (coughs) Jeremiah 37, for example, the prophet was accused of being a deserter. And so he was sentenced to be executed. He was put in a dungeon for many, many days before eventually being released. And so in verses 2 and verses 6, we read about dwelling in a place of darkness. In in verse 7, we read about being walled about and having to wear heavy chains. In verse 9, we read about being trapped by blocks of stones. And then in Jeremiah 38, because the people and the king did not like what Jeremiah was prophesying to them, Uh, we read that Jeremiah was placed into a well or a pit. He was let down by ropes and there was mud in the cistern and Jeremiah sank in the mud. So again, a place of darkness would be a, a fitting explanation of what is described. Verse 53 speaks about being flung into a pit and water closing over his head. And all of this happened during the period of time that led up to the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Jeremiah was a lonely and despised voice. People did not like what he was saying. And so several times he thought he was going to die. He thought his life was going to come to an end. So it's quite possible that our narrator is none other than the prophet Jeremiah who was remembering what happened to him back then. And it seemed to him that God had abandoned him in the depths of that pit as the days passed by. It even appeared to Jeremiah as we see in verse 12 that that God was using him for target practice just shooting an arrow into his kidneys so he could experience more pain. 
His prayers, as we see in verse 8, seem to be unheard and unanswered. Things seem so bleak and hopeless that we read in verses 17 and 18, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever experienced a time like that? Where the doors of heaven seem to be closed, tight, shut even to your prayers. God seems to be a million miles away. And if he draws close at all, it is just to add further misery to your life. This is not an uncommon place for believers to find themselves in. The psalmist knew this same feeling. Psalm 88 is known as the darkest psalm. Most psalms at least end with, uh, I will praise the Lord or something along those lines, but not Psalm 88. It ends with these words, You have taken my companions and loved ones from me, The darkness is my closest friend. And so because of extended hardship and sorrow, hope fades. Hope fades. That's not the end of the story. Then we come to verses 19 through 24 where we see that hope Remembers Now, to understand the significance of verses 19 to 24 for, for you and me in our situation today, there's one more thing we need to note from the first section of verses 1 through 18, and it is the last word of verse 18. And that word is Lord. You will see that it is the word Lord in capital letters. That means it is the covenant name of God, the special name that God had revealed to Moses, the the Yahweh name, the I am that I am. I am the God of steadfast, eternal, faithful covenant mercies. Moses, tell the people this is my name. This is how they are to know me. I'm giving you this special relationship name. Sometimes husbands and wives have special names for one another that that everyone else can't really understand and finds a little bit icky, but that's their special relationship name that they've given to each other. Sometimes fathers have a special name for their daughters which no one else can understand at all. But but it's a special relationship name that means so much to father and daughter. Well, those things just give us a small idea of what is in view in this special relationship name of God. I am the Lord. So even as hope fades For the narrator, even his his own strength and commitment ebb away, he preaches to himself just by deliberately using this name of God, the Lord. 
And you know you can do this yourself, people of God. You must do this to yourself in times of hardship and sorrow. You see, no matter how bad the narrator's circumstances were and no matter how bad your circumstances might be, there is one whose circumstances were far worse than those of any other human being who has ever lived. And that is Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine. The narrator and you and me have something in common, which is that we are sinners. There is truth in what we read there in verse 39. Uh, Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. We really have no right to complain at all about any hardship or sorrow that comes into our lives because we are sinners. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. Yet he endured injustice and inequity and insult and cruelty because of your sins and mine, which he took upon himself. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Just as the Jews looked to this special name, the special relationship name of God, so we are to look to the name of Jesus, the special relationship by which God has drawn near to us. So when you read a part of the Bible like Lamentations 3 verses 1 to 18, by all means see your own situation described there for a few moments, but ask the Spirit of the Lord to help you quickly look to the situation of the Lord Jesus that you might be encouraged and lifted up, that you might be enabled to fill your eyes and your the eyes of faith with your Savior Jesus And this is what our narrator does as he continues in verses 19 through 24 to remember. In verses 19 and 20, he briefly recalls his own situation, but then he calls to mind something else. And that phrase, call to mind, is very instructive. It's like he chooses to to bring up some memory to the forefront of his thinking, some truth to the front. We find this idea used very often in Scripture. The fourth commandment has to do with the Lord's Day. In Deuteronomy, the commandment to observe the day is given, and then a reason to do so is given. And the reason is, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And it's not as in, oh, remember the good times we had in Egypt? Those fun times? No. It's remember the slavery and the poverty that you were rescued from as an aid to your observing the Lord's day. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes to Timothy, who was finding ministry very hard going, and he said to him, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. 
Call to mind Jesus Christ instead of your situation. Hebrews 12.2, we read it a little bit earlier. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fill your gaze with Christ. Turn your gaze away from your circumstances and dwell on Jesus. So let's listen to our narrator remembering, I'm sure you have heard the Hebrew word chesed mentioned before, the steadfast, unchanging love of God. It's translated there in verse 22 as steadfast love. It is the word that best describes the faithful love of the Lord towards his people. Every verse of Psalm 136 ends with the refrain, His hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. So our narrator remembers this truth. He calls it to mind. He dwells on God's abiding faithfulness that endures forever. Now, if this is Jeremiah remembering, there was a time when he was rescued out of the pit, when he was released from the dungeon. He experienced the mercies of the Lord in this life. And with these words, he's calling on the people of Israel to remember the many deliverances that the Lord had worked for them in their history. And you and I also, if we were to take out a piece of paper and to write down a list of the good things God has done in our lives, would surely be able to come up with a long list. But even if the healing that we seek from the Lord does not come, or the change of circumstances that we are asking for does not come, it does not mean that the steadfast love of the Lord to us has stopped. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Believer, sometimes you will experience the mercies of the Lord with another morning of this life. Other times you will experience the mercies of the Lord with the morning of eternal life. But his steadfast love never ceases. This is the encouragement we receive as hope remembers. And it leads into verses 25 through 39 where hope instructs. Now the instruction of the narrator is aimed Firstly, at the Jews who are in Jerusalem or who are in exile. He wants them to make good use of the circumstances that they find themselves in. But his instruction is just as necessary for you and me today. So as you scan your eyes over verses 25 through 30, you see there a repeated call to patience and reflection and humility, and endurance. 
Our narrator wants God's people to know that it is spiritually useful to endure times of hardship, like times of injury or illness or insult or injustice. Our narrator learnt these things about God in the pit. Thomas Chisholm learned these things about God when he was sick. The Apostle Paul learnt great truths about God's grace in Christ when the thorn in his flesh was not removed. Robert Browning Hamilton has a poem that goes like this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And I think many of us here will say a knowing amen to Hamilton's poem. We've learned great things about our God and Saviour in times of hardship. And what should be learned in times of hardship is what we read in verses 31 through 33. The Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. Verse 33, he does not afflict from his heart. There is a phrase worth meditating on, brothers and sisters. God does not afflict from his heart. It's really explained very beautifully in the passage that we read earlier from Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As we come to verse 38, our narrator reminds his readers that both good and bad come from the hand of the Lord and sinners have no right to complain about any hardship that they endure. Lady Zion should not be angry with God for the situation she finds herself in. And you, dear Christian, must remember that the only one that the Father has truly punished is the Lord Jesus Christ. You, he disciplines. And there is a world of difference between punishment and the loving discipline of your Father in heaven. So these are the words of instruction that our narrator speaks to the people of Israel and to all who would read these words, God is a God of steadfast love to his people, his children whom he loves in Christ. But next, as we see in verses 40 through 51, hope cries out. And what we read here is our narrator urging his people to confess their sins. 
to make use of their circumstances as an opportunity to call out to the Lord in confession. Four or five years ago, I found myself in a hospital bed with a suspected heart attack. While I was there, I received a letter from a dear Christian friend who urged me to make use of this moment, this circumstance, to examine myself and, if necessary, confess my sins. Now, the letter was not accusatory. It was written in a very loving and gracious manner. But it was a reflection of this type of biblical truth that we see here in this word. Test and examine our ways when hardship and trouble comes in to our lives. We ought to receive such times as an opportunity from the Lord to take stock, to evaluate. And so the narrator puts himself with the Jewish people and he says our situation of devastation and death should not lead us to point an accusing finger to heaven. Instead, it should lead us to get out the mirror of self-examination and to see if we have sinned against the Lord. Now, as we come to verse 42, where it says, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven, we might wonder if this means that there are times when the Lord does not forgive those who confess their sins. That is not the case. First John 1 verse 9 is plain. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. What we need to remember is that God had previously explained to the Jewish people through the prophets that they were going to be invaded by the Babylonians, taken away into exile for 70 years, and then he would restore them back to Jerusalem. At the moment when the prophet writes, they are still here, invasion has just happened, everything is still very raw, the visible time of God's forgiveness and restoration is still in the future. Now is the time for genuine confession and repentance. So far, Jerusalem's tears have been tears of sorrow and grief and, and even anger at what has happened, but not sorrow for sin. One thing we learn pretty quickly as children is how to pretend we are sorry to escape punishment also that it's a little bit lighter than it might other have been. We can turn on the tears to convince mum and dad that we're so sorry to stop whatever we know is on the horizon. And of course we adults know how to play this game too, don't we brothers and sisters? 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The sooner we learn to be sorry for our sins, 
because they offend God and they injure others, the better it will be for us. The sooner we will experience the sense of having been forgiven in Christ. Our narrator knew this. Our narrator knew that Jerusalem had not yet come to the place of true repentance. And that is why he literally cries three times in verses 48 through 51. And so finally, as we come to verses 52 through 66, hope pleads. You'll notice in verses 40 through 51 that the pronouns were us and we and our, the narrator and the people. But in this section, he goes back to I and me and my. That's because once again, he's returning to his past experience as an encouragement to Israel now. This is what I experienced then, so this is what we can expect to happen now. As we've already said, our narrator, who might well be the prophet Jeremiah, had personally experienced the Lord's deliverance, the Lord's saving grace. He had been rescued from a pit when death seemed certain. That's what we read about in verses 52 through 58. As he thought he was lost, but he called on the Lord, and the Lord heard him and redeemed his life. But while he was in the pit, Jeremiah had also pleaded with the Lord to punish his enemies, to punish those who hated him and who scorned him and who had put him in this place unjustly. And the Lord did that. That's what we read in verses 59 through 66 as he calls on the name of the Lord to judge those who had plotted against him and to repay them and pursue them in anger and destroy them. So the narrator is pleading with the people of Jerusalem. He's saying, trust in the Lord for your deliverance and plead with him to pour out his vengeance on the Babylonians for what they have done to you. And we know from later in history that the Lord did exactly that to the Babylonians. Now the language of verses 52 through uh, sorry 65 and 66 is what we call imprecation. An imprecation is a prayer that calls down a curse or a calamity on someone. You find this language often in the Psalms known as the imprecatory Psalms. So as we read this we might think to ourselves that if we are being bullied at school or victimized at work or being persecuted for our faith in Christ, that we should call on God to destroy the bully or our persecutor. Well, we need to remember that the world of the Old Testament was a world divided into two groups, Jewish people, God's chosen people, and the Gentiles. God had made it very plain that he was dealing exclusively, pretty much, just with his chosen people, Israel. He had also prophesied 
about what he would eventually do to the Babylonians for what they did to the Jews. You and I do not live in those times. We live in times where God has his chosen people in every ethnic grouping of this world and every socio-economic group, etc. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. In Romans 12, we read these words, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So our calling, looking to Christ and the example that he set for us is to show kindness even to our enemies. But even those words in Romans 12 that we read, where we are told to leave room for the wrath of God, remind us that God does not and God cannot ignore the continually unrepentant wicked who trample on others. And there is going to come a time when all the earth, all that lies under the heavens, will be cleansed of all evil and all evildoers. That day is to come when the Lord Jesus returns and brings in the new heavens and the new earth, the place that is free of sin and evil and despair and death and devastation. And so, believer, the Lord Jesus is with you. His steadfast love to you never ceases. It never comes to an end. Great is His faithfulness. Remember that it is good to sit alone in silence and to wait for the salvation of the Lord. And do that by turning to Him each day in confession and repentance and faith. He says to you, Surely I am coming soon. So let your prayer be, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray.